be fun, but you got to ask like easy questions, okay? No like penetrating hard questions. No promises today. <laughs> <laughs> we got you guys cornered. Yeah. <laughs> So we have the Reverend Mother in our presence, don't we here? Yeah. Absolutely. I don't know why he doesn't call me that at home. <laughs> so we have a really good first question I think you guys are all going to enjoy, and some of you are going to nudge your spouse because we know the answer to this. The first one is, how do you know when you have found the one? Hmm. Well, he was one of many. No, I'm joking. Oh. <laughs> Oh, boy. We're going good today. I can tell. (laughs) Well, they told us to be honest. There you go. um, You know, I had my list of non-negotiables, and I spent many months praying over that list, and and he fit that list. I think it would be good for them to hear how you came up with that list of non-negotiables. Sure. I'd love to. I actually, I was at a camp as a sponsor, a high school camp. And there was the speaker who sat down with me, and I told him that I had been dating a lot, lots of different guys, and um, just couldn't find the one. And so he asked me, he encouraged me to go back to my dorm that night and write a list of everything I believe that God would want me to have in a person. And I came back the next day, and I had like 33 things on that list. (laughs) And he said, seriously, there's no one, not even Jesus could live up to this list. So um, so he asked me to take the top five and put it at the top of the page and draw a line. So I did that. And then he um, encouraged me as I looked at those five to say, do not date anyone that doesn't fit those five. So all of a sudden I started looking at those five going, oh my goodness. Who am I going to date that's going to only have these five? So every time someone would ask me out, I'd have to look at my five and go, no, sorry. Next thing I knew, I wasn't dating at all for months. And I was just praying. And then Ling came along, and he was at five. And one of my five was spontaneous. So I knew after he asked me to marry him four days later that I got that one. So So do you remember the top five? I do remember the top five. The first one was tall, dark, handsome, because I believe being attracted to someone was very important. Um, (laughs) Second one was having a relationship with the Lord, and I knew that was very important to me. The third one was someone who was called to ministry, because I knew that God had called me to ministry. Wasn't sure what that looked like as far as being a pastor's wife or a missionary, but I knew I had that calling on my life. Uh, third one was someone extremely responsible, and my dad was that way, and I wanted someone who was going to take care of our family, who could fix everything, and by the way, he's really good at this, so um, so that was important to me, and then someone spontaneous. I was spontaneous, so. Yeah. So I, I love the fact that right there at the top of the list was they have to know Jesus as their Savior. And I think, so matter of fact, I, if you've got your Bibles real quick, there's a, there's a passage that just really says this ought to be part of that process of finding the one. And it's in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. If you're not real familiar, if you go to the back of your Bible, work to the left, you're going to find 2 Corinthians. But 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, just simply says this. It says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? 
And what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will live with them and walk with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. And so I just think for all of our singles in the room to hear that, to say, there's absolutely no reason for you to be dating someone who doesn't know your Jesus. Because I think one of the, the scary things is, is that people who don't know Jesus are still nice people, and it's possible to fall in love with them. And so if you allow yourself to date them, you end up now with the wrong one, because God's already said one of the prerequisites to the right one is they have to know your Jesus, they have to love your Jesus like you do. And so the, as, a, as a Christian, you and I have no business dating someone who doesn't have that same value. <clears throat> but I think, too, the other is, is that this also can be applied, I know it's not directly there, to dating Christians who are drastically behind you spiritually. And uh, because, you know, it talks about this idea of being yoked together, and the idea was is that you had kind of an oxen, and it was a matched set. Uh, Both of the oxen were equal in strength and in in stamina to be able to pull uh, the, most of the time it it was um, a plow. But you had to be equally yoked. One of the problems I think happens all the time is Christians get uh, yoked to somebody who spiritually is completely on a different page than they are. And that's going to cause tons and tons of fights uh, within the relationship. And I think the most critical mistake is when a woman, when a female, uh, marries a man who is drastically behind her spiritually because Scripture's then going to thrust him in a position of being the leader of the home. And this is going to cause, cause a constant tension within that home because she's going to be constantly pushing him or she's going to be usurping leadership in the home because he's not taking it and he's going to be constantly falling behind. The, a couple of years ago, we did a dating series, and we we talked about this topic, and when we uh, got to this passage, I brought out a huge Great Dane on stage, and I uh, put a yoke on it to a chihuahua. And I said, you know, there's just no way for that relationship not to be ugly. They're both dogs, so you could say, hey, we're equally yoked, but the reality is where they were physically was so far apart, and I think we do this spiritually. And so I would say to every single in this room, be careful, be careful, be careful that not only are they Christ followers, but that they're, they are a Christ follower that's close enough to you to challenge you in your Christian faith. And then especially for the gals, you need a guy who can, take, who can be the spiritual leader of your home, which means they probably ought to be farther on in Christ than you. But I love, I love that you had those five things, that you stuck to them, and God brought us Me together. Too. Yeah. Very cool. Smart of you to put a ring on it, Lynn. Yeah, you you didn't take me very long. When I found it, I went for it. (laughs) That's Beyonce theology right there. There you go. So we have, I think this is a perfect uh, question that goes along with singles. Discussing, you've talked a lot about men needing physical needs and then uh, women needing emotional needs. And we have a question from a single female saying, what about those single in attendance? How do singles approach this within needing their emotional needs and men needing physical needs to obtain a relationship by obeying the word, staying in scripture? How do they navigate that? Do you want to try that or me? How do you want to do that? I get that one. Okay. So I think God designed this on purpose. So you're right. uh, A male comes to this. A male comes to this saying, hey, 
uh, my first instinct is sex, and then I'll talk about uh, working on a relationship with you. A female comes to this, and she's coming first and saying, hey, let's be relational, let's share, let's share some of our innermost emotions. And then sex me will come out of that later on. But here's, here's what I think is so powerful about this, is that because God says, hey, before marriage, sex is not supposed to be a, a part of this relationship. And I, you, you understand what I'm saying? It's, your hands don't belong anywhere that she needs to clothe, you know, all that stuff. So, it's a, you know, I'll let you kiss once in a while. But anyways, uh, sex isn't supposed to be the driving force in this thing. Here's the thing that I think is powerful, is that, ladies, this gives you a test run. Because what now you get to discover, because you're not going to cross that line, and you're not going to turn this thing into a, a union of hormones, because we're going to withhold that, that level of physical contact till after marriage, you suddenly get to discover, does he have the capacity to shift into this gear and to relate to you this way? And this actually becomes now, the whole dating process becomes practice for when you're married. And I'm just going to tell you that if, if, if he's not interested in doing this and if he doesn't have the capacity to do this and demonstrate that to you on a consistent basis, you know he's going to struggle on this when you get married. So I'm just saying to you, that I think this is a God-given uh, exam for marriage and that it's really, really powerful for you to discover, do we have the capacity to connect on an emotional level to let that be one of the foundational pieces of relationship before the hormones get involved? on this deal. Here's the second thing that I think is so powerful in this, and that is, ladies, if you make yourself available to him physically before the marriage, you realize you're teaching him to be a luster. You just are. You're teaching him that women are available to him physically outside the bonds of marriage, which means you've set a precedent not just for yourself, but for every other woman out there, that she's available to him outside of a committed marital relationship. And you've taught him how to lust. And so one of the most powerful things that happens for a dating couple is being able to learn this self-control and, and to reinforce within his mind and heart, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Women are not available to me physically outside of the commitment of marriage. Okay? And, and part of learning this self-control is now when he takes a business trip, you go, no, 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 no. I watched him in our marriage and I watched mom, or in our dating and I watched moments when we were on the couch and things got a little hot and heavy and he had the self-control to go, whoa, 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 no. Not going to go there. Not going to dishonor my Lord by being physically active before them. When you've seen him and demonstrate that capacity, then you know when you're married and he's on the business trip. And all of a sudden, someone's being a little bit attentive to him or someone's paying a little attention. You know he has the self-control now to go, hey, uh, th this is, yeah, we're, no, uh, time to go back to my hotel room alone, right? Because you've seen him and you've helped him learn that capacity during the dating. I think this is just a huge opportunity to figure out what type of ground your relationship stands on. I mean, yeah. Do you want to add anything? He did not to park. <laughs> so talking about self-control, I think this is a really important question that we want to tackle. It's a, a male actually saying when his wife is pressing his buttons, men, don't raise your hand on this. When his wife's pressing buttons, what can he do to remove those buttons so he can remain in control during a difficult discussion, conversation, when he feels like it, that hot button's getting pushed mm. and he doesn't want to 
overreact in that moment. Lisa, you want to take a shot at that? I know you've never been the husband. Of course, but, I would never, ever push your and button. And you've never pushed my button ever, so I know this will be hard for you. Yeah, I think, I think for Lynn and I, we've set up rules for arguing. You know, we just have. And so I try um, extremely hard myself not to do those things that's going to push his buttons, but I know sometimes I do. And, and I appreciate the fact that, that we've agreed not to come back and say mean words to each other, and we've honored each other that way. Yeah. But I'm not sure what you're thinking exactly when you don't respond to me when I've, you know, done the other. So. Yeah. I just, I just think when, when you get into button pushing, mm-hmm. you've clearly crossed that line into winning. You know, you're, you're trying, this is no longer let's solve a problem. This is, I'm going to gain a tactical advantage on you by pushing your buttons and making you mad and making you hurt, which again, I mean, I, I just don't even know how that fits in a marriage. I mean, if I love you, I, this is not about winning and this is, and I'm surely not about hurting. I'm not, I don't want to say words that hurt you. And, and I'm not going to tell you that there haven't been moments you and I've been a little short with each other and said stuff like, hey, you never, and, you know, how come you forgot for the third time? But I think there's a part where when that begins to happen, you and I begin to back off and go, wait a minute. We're, we're lobbying stuff now. We're, we are pushing buttons on each other right now. And, and this, when does that ever turn out good? I mean, when do you ever have a moment you go, hey, you know what? Well, I'll tell you what. I I just absolutely ran my wife into the ground. I beat her up in that argument, and we both feel much better now. You know, when when does that ever happen? How does how does that ever lead to success uh, within a relationship? So, I guess I would say to all the wives out there, why are you pushing buttons? Why, why would you ever use that tactic? Because you know, as Doctor Phil would say, how's that working for you? You know, I mean. I, when have you ever gotten the result you wanted by pushing his buttons? And then I would say to the men, you know, that, and, and this goes both ways, right? This could be the husband pushing the wife's buttons. I mean, it goes both ways. But then I would say to the, the person who's receiving the button pushing, um, why do you let it go on? Why don't you raise your hand in that moment and say, whoa, 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 wait. Look, look what we're doing right now. Guys, I'm just going to tell you that any time you allow emotion and anger and tactics to be part of this interaction between a man and a woman, and no one ever wins. I, I, I don't think you can name a time when you say, hey, boy, I tactically outflanked my wife. I tactically was uh, stronger than my husband. Boy, we blew up at each other. But boy, the result of that is just an incredibly strong marriage now. I, when has that ever gotten you to a good result? And we talked about this idea of boxes a week or two ago of saying, hey, if I can't forgive it, forget it. Then, I, And if it's a fix-it item, if this is something we need to deal with in our marriage, and we've had a lot of that, we've had stuff we've had to deal with, then I need to schedule that. I need, when I'm not angry, when this isn't, you know, about that, and we're going to sit and talk about it. And we've even had some moments when we were sitting and talking, and it got a little tense, right, along the way. And we've had to deal with that. No, I think absolutely. And because we've made the choice to say we're going to honor each other in our conversations, then we hold to that. And I'm a strong personality. And so I had to say, you know, it's not about winning because I love to win. And so 
I can walk away from something, even though he disagrees with me, and be totally fine with that. Because in my mind, I've said, that's okay. We do not have to win. Our first year of marriage, I came from a family that yelled. My mom yelled all the time about everything. Hmm. So I thought every time I got frustrated, I needed to yell. I yelled all the time about everything. And he would just sit and smile, almost laugh at me. He says he wasn't laughing. I could have sworn he was laughing. But um, he would just smile. And then that would make me really mad. And then after a year, I figured out that that wasn't working very well. Yeah. Yeah, and, and honestly, we, we actually, in, in those early days, I remember you throwing a phone at me at one point. Um, I... I, I don't remember that. I, I remember it very clearly because yeah, it was a very thing. expensive phone, and it broke. And and honestly, we we stopped our first year of marriage. I mean, there was there there was a lot of energy there, mm-hmm. and uh, and we stopped and said, "This isn't getting us anywhere. We have to have rules about how we fight." Okay, just for the record, the phone was more like this when I was just talking and it accidentally just went out of my hand. <laughs> I'm assuming it had a cord because it's, it was way back in the day. It's amazing school. how as it slipped out of her hand, it came right from my head. But that's okay. That's okay. I, I, I'll I, take that explanation. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, thank goodness 33 years later we figured that out. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I my phone's intact. I wasn't born then. Yeah, Just exactly. Throwing that out there. Oh, great. We feel really good now. <laughs> so I, I guess just to sum it up, I, I don't get pushing buttons. And and I, I would say that if I was the one whose buttons were being pushed, I think the best response in that moment is to say, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's sit down and actually talk about this instead of bantering. Because that's what you're doing. You're bantering. Let's sit down and talk about this. Because I'm just, guys, disagreement added with frustration um, never works. It just gets ugly. But disagreement talked about calmly has at least the potential of resolution. And so rather than waiting until your spouse has pushed enough buttons, until it's gotten you to a place of anger and fury, then to try to unpack it together, it's just insane. Why? Why would you wait till there's that much emotion in it so that all it can be is a fight? That's all it can be. And so to address it early and just say, hey, look, you keep bringing this up. Let, let's talk about it. Because I'm just going to tell you right now, I disagree with what you're saying. So let's talk about it. Let's work out something we both can live with. Continuing with boundaries, we have a question in regards to what do you feel comfortable sharing whenever you do share an important piece of information that stays between you two? And how do, then, what does it look like when you feel confident enough to share it with others? How do you know that division, that line that you walk within personal information and things like that? You know, I believe boundaries are extremely important. I, that's what intimacy is. That's part of being intimate is that there are things that I know about him that he shares with me that he would not share with anyone else other than God knowing no one else is going to know and vice versa. And if you don't have that person that you're sharing those things with, then you're not truly intimate because that's part of it. And those things we just do not share. And besides, he's perfect. I just can't go around telling everyone all the time how perfect he is. So That's horrible. <laughs> okay. So that she just lied. I'm just going to say that out loud right now. No, in all seriousness, no one's perfect, right? And um, it, it just doesn't do any good. There's just lots of things you just should not share that you should keep 
you know, just between yourself. And I, and I would not share things on social media. My life is not on social media. Yeah, I don't, I don't get these couples that when they're having a fight, go on social media and go, boy, husbands are all jerks and blah, blah. I mean, the whole world then knows. And the problem is when you make up, when it gets resolved, the, very seldom you go back on and go, okay, my, my husband really is a great guy. And, you know, he, we just, that doesn't, so all people hear is the yuckiness of your relationship that gets shared out there. And I, I'm just going to say, too, when you're struggling a little bit with your spouse, I think you've got to be incredibly, incredibly careful with who you talk to about it. Because we, we, under the guise of counseling, we go and say horrible things about our spouse, in basically to people who have no business knowing about it. And, and I would just say to you, I think gossip is any time you say something to someone who's not a direct part of the problem or who does not have the capacity to be an absolute part of the solution. If you're just sharing information for information's sake because you need to vent, you know, emotionally vomit on somebody, that's probably gossip. That's probably what it is. And it's so unfair to do that with your spouse. Um, and, and I would just encourage you not to do that type of sharing. Um, I, I, there's a moment in our marriage that I thought was pretty darn cool. Lisa, Lisa has no problem telling me where I'm failing. Uh, she... Uh, matter of fact, it's probably one of the things she does really, really well in our relationship because I know she loves me and wants me to be better. And so we, she shares with me fairly regularly uh, where I'm failing. Um, but the interesting thing is, is that in public, she's one of my greatest defenders. And I remember a really, really pivotal moment, probably within the first year, year and a half of our marriage. She was at lunch with my dad. And my dad began to go through a list of all the things that I was failing at. And, you know, I look back now, and my dad was probably right. I, his list was probably dead on, and I was irresponsible about this, and I didn't follow through on that. And he was just going through this list of things with my wife. And it was interesting because my wife stopped in mid-sentence and said, you will never talk about my husband that way again. And if you don't stop right now, I'm leaving the lunch. And uh, the, great, the crazy thing was I knew that she knew the list was true. But she was going to defend me as her husband. She wasn't going to allow someone else to badmouth her husband. And she doesn't do that. She doesn't go out in public. And I can't tell you how much honor I received in that moment that my wife would not allow someone else to badmouth me, even though it was probably justified. And she was my greatest defender in that moment. It's a really neat moment. Yeah. It's a really neat moment. I think every man in here can just, I, there's some power in that too, to be protected by your wife as yeah. well. It's great. So our last question, I think, is a very important one that we're all wondering. How do we tackle this as men, as a family, is what can we do as a husband? What can husbands do to be the spiritual leader of our family? We know our wives crave that. We know our kids crave that. So what can we do as husbands to be the spiritual leader of our family? Hmm. I'm glad we asked that one today because it actually fits into the challenge we wanted to do this week. So I think it's a great one to end on. Oh, figure. There you go. Okay. Lisa, do you want to say anything about that? Um, sure. I would say that if, you, if you're really asking your husband to be the spiritual leader of the household, he's going to make decisions, and sometimes his judgment call is not going to be what you would want. So if you're ask, asking him to take that role, then you need to allow him to take that role, knowing that you're not always going to agree with him. Hmm. On the other side, husbands, you can't be passive about it. And um, if you are, 
it makes the respect level, it makes it very difficult for your wife. That doesn't mean that she still shouldn't do it, but it does make it that much harder. But if I'm going to ask him to be the spiritual leader of my household, I need to trust him to be that person and to do that, knowing that he may not always make the decisions that I would. And he doesn't. I mean, we disagree quite often on things. But I trust him. I've asked him to take that role. I've submitted to him in that. So now I'm allowing him to do it. So there's a passage, and I, w- I won't make you guys turn to it, but it's First Peter chapter uh, 3, uh, and it's verses 1 and 2, so you can look at it later, ladies. Here's what it says. It says, Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. And, and, and here's what I think, gals, you've got to be very, very careful if you're in a relationship where your husband's not taking spiritual leadership, is that you don't get into shame mode. You know, you might say, hey, why aren't you, and how come, and you ought to, because men react negatively to shame. And when you get in that mode of, hey, you're not carrying the ball, you're not doing your part, you're not leading the way you ought to lead, he will shut down just for the principle of it, just to win the argument of it. And it's just an absolutely no-win stance for you. And I think First Peter gives this incredible clarity that says, hey, you might, ladies, actually have to kind of carry the ball a little bit. You might be the one bringing the kids to church. You might be the one who's initiating prayer at your meals or whatever that is for a period of time. But don't do it in a mode that shames him. Just do it out of a quiet reverence so that he can see what you're doing and that can, God can begin to use that to convict his heart. And guys... He, Guys may or may not ever come to it, but you're still much further ahead than if you're nagging him into... No man has ever been nagged into being the spiritual leader of his own. It's never worked, ladies. So don't play that card. It's just just an unhealthy card. Here's what I would say to the men. Men, I I think we get freaked out about this. I think we think that leading our home is some really, really hard, mystical, ethereal thing to do. And the reality is being the spiritual leader of your home is absolutely simple if you just engage in it. The easiest way to think about this is, hey, what would I have to do and what would my home be like if I wanted my family to be more in tune with God than the family I grew up in? That's the question. If I want my family to be more in tune with God than the family I grew up in, what decisions would I have to make for my home? And and I'm just going to toss a couple out there that I think are low-hanging fruit that would be so simple. You could walk out of here today, guys, and actually be in the spiritual leadership of your home if you were simply doing two or three very, very uh, simple things. One is simply this. If every man in this room today would leave here and say, hey, uh, as, as the husband, as the spiritual leader of my home, I'm making a decision today, and that's simply this. Uh, my family is going to be in church every single Sunday. That's my decision. We're not going to wake up on Sunday, decide whether or not we honor God this Sunday. My decision is the spiritual. Our family, the Johnson family, the Emmett family, we're going to be in church every single Sunday because that's what the Emmett family does. Do you realize that simple decision would be a decision of spiritual leadership for your own? And it would be absolutely God-honoring. And then I'm going to, I'm going to push even further than that and say, I think your family ought to be a two-hour family. You ought to be two-hour Christians. And what do I mean by that? 
I think you ought to be not only in church on Sunday, but your family should be in at least one other place where you're growing. So if your kids are young, and that means kaboom, then I think you should decide for your family. You know what? My kids go to kaboom every single week. If we have to TiVo our favorite show, or we don't care, uh, we're going to do that every single week. If your kids belong in youth group, then I think you should say, you know what? My kids are going to be in youth group. I know they hate youth group. I don't care that they hate youth group. That's not what the Smiths do. The Smiths go to youth group. That's what, that's what we do. And that you would make a decision to be a two-hour family, which means then to model it, you and your wife need to either go to a small church or you need to come to the mine or you need to be part of a small group. But guys, you realize if you were modeling that, that would be spiritual leadership. And guys, it's your two decisions away. And then my last suggestion for, for a guy in here, he says, hey, I'm, I'm interested in stepping up and maybe being a spiritual leader. And that is simply this, that you would go on a date, you can call it whatever you want to call it, a date or an evening with each of your kids. And uh, I would challenge you that you do this once a month with just one kid once a month. And while you're on that, while you're out with that kid spending alone time with that particular kid, here's the one question you've got to generate that night. It's simply this. How are you and God? How are you and God? It's like checking the oil on your car. Hey, how's the oil doing? How are you and God? And if the oil's low, you pour in a little bit of oil, right? And if your kid says, hey, you know what? God and I aren't doing that great right now. And you say, well, tell me about that. Let's, let's talk about that. And you would pour a little bit of God into them. You'd have that talk with them during that moment. And guys, I cannot tell you how powerful uh, that moment is. It's almost like you're being the priest of your home because you're taking the spiritual temperature of your children and then you're responding to the spiritual temperature of your children. And it's just an incredibly powerful moment. How are you and God? That simple question somewhere while you're having Baskin and Robbins, somewhere after you've gone to the movie, how are you and God doing? If every man in our church would do that, you'd position yourself as the spiritual leader of your home. And that's low-hanging fruit. That is absolutely within reach of every single guy in this room. And so I would just encourage you to do that. All right, well, hey, we're done, right? We ran out of time on the deal. I want to say thank you to you guys for doing this and for coming out. Anthony, for asking really embarrassing questions. And Lisa, for being honest. And how about if we give them a hand as they take off? And Thank you guys for doing that.